This is Channel 253. The Citizen Tacoma podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Candice Rood, and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. I'm Candice. I'm Doug. And we are the Citizen Tacoma podcast, informing an empowered electorate. I thought we were empowering an informed electorate. In in the the city city of destiny. Candace. It's our second episode of the day, so I'm feeling a little loopy, but we just had a fantastic conversation with Madam Speaker-designate Representative Lori Jenkins. And we talked about humorous hosiery. <laughs> humorous hosiery. Oh, boy. <laughs> Tune in. Welcome to Citizen Tacoma. We have here the new, and what do you, how do you say it? It's like elect- Madam Speaker of the House elect. It's at, the title is actually Speaker Designate. Speaker Designate yeah. of the House, Lori Jenkins, Representative Hi. Lori Jenkins. Hi, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you Happy for coming. to be here. Yeah, one of my favorite places to come. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> we love that. Um, yeah, I was amazed that your staff, like after you've had probably one of the busiest, craziest, most high-profile weeks of your life, and your staff like got right back to me and was like, "Yeah, she'll come on Citizen Tacoma. We'd love to get this done." And I was like, yeah. "Oh, thank you." Well, you know, I I um it, I had a whole bunch of requests in, and I saw Citizen Tacoma, and I, I said, "Well, those are my people. <laughs> uh, that, that's my district. That's where it's taped in." I'm I'm going to do that, um, and they didn't push back on me or anything. But um, but so I'm I'm happy you got it in at a good time. I I know I was telling you before we started. I'm I'm getting a little bit uh, tired of my own voice um, in the media. So um, I don't know how long this will last. And I'm always happy to talk to everybody. But uh, I'm I'm ready to 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 do work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we snagged yeah. you when we did. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, if you get tired of talking, just throw it all right back in my face and okay. make me answer questions. Okay. I'll, I'll, maybe we'll do that halfway through. <laughs> I'll ask you, like, what it's like to be a reporter and things like that. What do you all think? Great. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I'm down. <laughs> so, Lori, tell us about uh, some people listening might not know what it means to be Speaker of the House or why that's a powerful position or kind of you and your history mm-hmm. in the legislature. Can you tell us a little bit about your background there? Yeah, well, I, I'll be honest and tell you, I'm not sure I know what it is to be Speaker of the House <laughs> yet. I've been the Speaker designate for a week. True. Um, uh, uh, but I was elected uh, to the House uh, eight, nine years ago from serving the 27th Legislative District. So that's most of the city of Tacoma and Ruston, Fife Heights, um, everything but kind of the deep end of South Tacoma. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, we have legislative sessions every year uh, in uh, odd-numbered years, uh, such as this. It's a long session, and one of the reasons it's long, and this is by Constitution. It's set in the Constitution. Um, one of the reasons it's long is because we do a biennial budget, a two-year budget. And then on even-numbered years, which will be 2020, we have a short session, which is just 60 days. Mm-hmm. And it's you know intended to be kind of a cleanup. Um, quick session. Uh, we start our sessions on the second Monday of uh, of every January. That's in the state constitution. So we know when we start and we know when we're supposed to finish. Um, but you don't always. <laughs> we don't all we don't always. And you know, I was elected at the height of the Great Recession. And we had a lot of special sessions uh, because it was very um, that was very difficult and it taught me a lot about my values. And that's one of the reasons I think everybody in the world should run for office mm. um, at some point and serve uh, because people often think um, that being an elected official in some ways is about choosing between good and bad. Um, and I would tell you that in the Great Recession, it was, it's, easy to, it's easy to decide what's good and what's bad. In the Great Recession, what we were having to do is do budget cuts between good things and good things mm. and things that people really needed, but we didn't have enough money to fund them. Um, and that was a real-life a real life exercise in values clarification for me. Right. So anyway, back to your question. Um, the, the speaker of the House – so that one party is 
we're pretty much a two-party system, Republicans and, and Democrats. There are 98 uh, people elected to the state House of Representatives, and whichever party has the majority of members is the majority party, and they basically get to elect the Speaker of the House. The leader of the other party is called the minority leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are 57 uh, elected Democrats right now in the House, and so we have the majority, and we've had that for 20 years mm-hmm. um, at different levels. And so that the House Democratic Caucus, all those members, get to elect who they want to be speaker. And when you're elected, you get the title of speaker uh, designate. Mm-hmm. And then on the first day of session, as I understand it, um, I, my name will be put forward uh, for a vote. And uh, hopefully I'll still I'll be I'll be elected. And I'll, uh, the, the presumption, right, is that I'll have the 57 votes right. of my caucus. And you know, and depending on my re- relationship with the Republicans or what their kind of political viewpoint of what they should do in this <laughs> circumstance is, I may get their votes or I may not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Or you could wake up and be like, it was all a dream. None yeah. of this ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that there are going to be some days be- between now and then when I wake up and think, I wish this were a dream and that it never <laughs> happened. Um, I've, I've, been, I've been actually telling people that I feel like I have this giant plate full of food that I am required to eat, <laughs> but I don't know what any of the food items are, and I'm really certain there is some liver buried in there, <laughs> which is my least favorite thing. Um, so uh, um, it, th- it's all about like eating and digesting all this food. You know, I mean, and the analogy is just all the things I'm learning and the policy That's issues and the, and, the, and the stakeholders, um, the stakeholder relationships and things like mm-hmm. that. So I've, I've been there for nine years and I know a lot of things, but there's a lot of things I uh, don't know. Um, I guess I would say the one thing, though, I, I do know, and it's why I ran for this um, spot, is that the Democrats have controlled the State House of Representatives for 20 years, and I believe really strongly uh, that millions and millions and millions of Washingtonians have what they have mm-hmm. because Democrats have controlled the State House, um, and that many bad things haven't happened to them because mm-hmm. they've controlled the State House. So that's kind of theoretical, but it really it's a very personal matter for me as um, as an out lesbian who's married to my wife. Uh, every everything my family has, everything, is because Democrats have controlled the House of Representatives. We have stopped bad things from happening. We have helped good things happen, and I think every single family and person in this state should have what I've got. Right. They sh- they should have us protecting them from bad things and making good things happen for them. Absolutely. So that that's that's why I wanted to run. Yeah. So yeah, we have to obviously mention that you're the first woman and mm-hmm. first lesbian to be the speaker of the house. Yep. Um congratulations. Thank you. It's huge. Yeah. Um and so this is very personal for you also mm-hmm. and also because you care about the state you live in and all your constituents. Mm-hmm. Um so why is it a powerful position? So you, as speaker, you'll be head of the rules committee, right, mm-hmm. and a couple other committees, and that kind of means that you get to do what? Yeah, so the rules uh, – when someone files a bill, it gets referred to a committee that has jurisdiction for it. So I, I've chaired the Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee, so um, firearm bills uh, come to my committee, landlord-tenant bills come to my committee, or I guess my former committee. Um, and so I get to decide as chair what bills I want to hear and don't want to hear, and then I get to uh, uh, put bills up for a vote to move out of committee onto the next step. And so a bill that's a, a policy bill that doesn't have fiscal impact for the state would go into the rules committee. And that's like the last stop before it gets to the floor for a vote. Mm-hmm. There's always more bills that are filed than you actually have time to hear in committee or that you have time to move off the floor of the House. So a lot of the speaker's job is to manage time and 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 figure out what are the highest priority things for us to do in the time we've got and move bills, help move bills out of the rules committee um, that that are high priorities. You're kind of like an air traffic controller. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Yes, that's true. And I also think kind of thinking about the food analogy, (laughs) um, right, there are a lot of times we have very aspirational goals and policies that are really big and transformational. But Olympia is mostly an incremental place where you take – steps to 
to arrive at a final destination. Sometimes you have to take multiple ones. So if you think about that like eating a meal, the speaker's job is to figure out how big of a bite we can take Mm -hmm. and then how many bites we have to take before we get to the destination. Mm -hmm. And, um, And you think about that not just in terms of time, but in terms of the political implications of a bill, what effect that has on your members back in their districts, um, if it has, if you think it might have an effect on the your ability to keep the majority, so it, you know, whether or not it's a good policy and what the implications, you know, sometimes we have policies that come forward that don't, they don't seem like they cost much money, but if you start to look three or four or five years out, the costs for them balloon. And so you're you're doing something in the budget that you want to be quite aware of mm-hmm. before you move a bill. So those are all things that, that, um, that the speaker thinks about. And I think that the committee chairs think about that too. But in the end, it's the speaker's call and the rules committee is kind of where the speaker really exercises a lot of authority mm-hmm. um, to let bills out or keep bills in. So you can't just go in like a bull in a china shop, swing the pendulum far left, and expect that there are going to be no consequences and you're just going to get stuff done. Correct. I could do that. You uh, uh, And the, the caucus could do that. Mm-hmm. And there are consequences for doing that. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't be speaker too long, maybe. <laughs> I, I think that's uh, likely true. I think that's likely true. Right. And um, so you're proceeding, succeeding, succeeding. succeeding. Yep. It's been a long day. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I, hear, I totally hear you. <laughs> so you're succeeding Frank Chop, who was speaker for 20 years. Yeah. Um, how, and you kind of alluded to this, but, uh, you know, the, the policy watchers and the Leah Olympia watchers are saying, oh, you know, she's probably going to be more to the left. She's yeah. more progressive. How do you think you're going to manage differently than he did? Yeah. So, um, I mean, f- a couple things uh, about that f- first. Um, one is we only have two members of our caucus who've actually served under any other speaker than Frank Chop. Wow. So he has set the standard for like what everybody expects. And so, and he, he's the person I will measure myself against too, right? There's, there's just not a lot of um, other examples in people's memories. Um, and I, my, I went around as I was running and I met with all 57 members uh, in their, most all of them in their districts. Um, which was an wow. awesome – it was an awesome experience because I got to – some people would take me for walks and point out things that the state had invested in in their district and what had been done with the money. Um, and then others would take me, like, to their favorite coffee shop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during the course of an hour meeting, like, six people would come up to them and say, hey, thank you for doing this. And, hey, I'd like to talk to you about that. It just gave Staged. me – uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it didn't. I think I like to think I can kind of tell some of those things. Right. They were very good actors. At this stage. Very good. Just kidding. Yeah, but um, but it gave me an incredible amount of confidence in our caucus, mm-hmm. in the in the smartness and the connection that people have to their communities, and in um and in our caucus's um preparedness and ability to make the right decision about speaker. And I would say that whether I was interviewing with you now and you were asking, well, what was it like to run even though you weren't elected? Um, I would I, I felt very confident by the end of it that I could I was going to trust the decision that the caucus made mm-hmm. and be very supportive of it. Um, that is not at all the question that you asked. Oh, you asked about <laughs> how Frank and how I made, Yeah, so I, I kind of tell that story to, to say I think there were five things that were very thematic. Let's see if I can remember all five of them now. Um, one of them had to do with the transparency. Uh, our, our internal and external transparency was important to people that I, that I heard. Our, also, our internal and our, and our external communications and improving those right. um, were important. Our collaboration with the Senate and the governor. Uh, the Senate is democratically controlled. The governor is a Democrat. We should really have strong collaboration. Um, members wanted the opportunity to exercise more leadership. For everybody to do that, we're we've been a very seniority-run place, and I do support that. 
but there are there should be opportunities for everybody to really um, engage and have decision making and leadership opportunities. And then the third one that was very strong across the board was bringing a much stronger equity lens, both to our our internal operations, to our candidate recruitment and support, and to our policy, the, our decisions on what policies we move forward. So those those are the five things that I'll focus on because of the five things that my caucus told me they wanted to focus mm-hmm. on, and. Um, that the commitment that I have made to them is that I want to be their speaker and I want to be the people's speaker. Mm. Um, and that's how I think I do that. Cool. Yeah. How does, so how did that process work? When did you decide you were going to run for a speaker and then what happened after yeah. that? Um, I decided nine years ago and then not <laughs> at all. And then like, like at the end of last session. So what I mean by that is I think it was at the end of my first year, my first term, I was meeting with my freshman colleagues and we were all talking about different jobs that we thought would be interesting to have. And I'm like, I think it'd be kind of cool to be speaker. And I didn't, I wasn't saying like, I'm going to be speaker. I, I was really saying, I think that seems like a neat job. It was more kind of a passing comment. Many more people in the room took it they took it much more seriously than I did. Um, and in retrospect, I would never do that again because <laughs> I think that it it's it it kind of this ambition kind of followed me that I wasn't really thinking about mm. um very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that happened. And I think the other thing is, you know, men say that all the time, right. And there people are like, they're great. that look at they're focused on accomplishing that. And, you know, a woman, Maybe not so much. The audacity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but so then when when it became clear that Frank wasn't going to run again uh, and that he was going to step down as speaker, uh, I I th- I started thinking about it really strongly again, and I actually met with a number mem- of members of the caucus, really kind of diverse members, um, to talk about what it, what they wanted in their next speaker because I I knew there were parts of me that would be very different than him. Mm-hmm. And if what they wanted was was somebody who was really identical, um, then I shouldn't run. But if they were open to some, you know, a woman, a out lesbian, um, someone, you know, I don't know who, uh, you know, like I've been a chair and I really trust the chairs to do a lot, you mm-hmm. know, and and some things like that, like so, delegating. Yeah. Um. So so those those are all things that help me decide to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that I'm elected, I, you know, I'm going to be a first year speaker. Frank was a 20 year speaker. What I'm going to be able to do in my first year in comparison to what he could do in his 20th, probably very different things. Mm-hmm. And I think I've, I've got a lot of learning to do. And he's one of the primary people I'm going to l- try to learn from. Right. Right. That makes sense. Um, so you said you expect there, there are things you're going to do differently. Mm-hmm. Um, can we expect the House to move further to the left on some issues? Well, I mean, if you read some publications, we're going to become a socialist body. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, right, like I'm so far left. Um, <laughs> um, but I, so here's the thing. I think, I think that our caucus has changed some. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, we had a lot of years where we weren't really able to do much on environmental issues. And I would say that I think at this point our caucus – is fairly united in being really, really concerned and wanting to take action on climate change. And so that's a place that is, in my, I guess in my mind, it's less about me and more about where our caucus and where our, where our caucus is moving. Um, so the commitment that I made to the caucus is I'm going to try as hard as I can to make sure that we dialogue about these big issues and we have a strong sense amongst us of how we want to move forward on on these things. And then my job is to help figure us, figure out how we move forward when the caucus has decided, yes, yes, mm-hmm. we want to do this. Um, I, I, I'll just give an example. So we passed uh, – we. A number of years while I chaired the Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee, we didn't um, we we didn't move very many firearm bills, and it was a long, slow build. And then last year we we moved 
really like 10 bills that were very good. A lot of them were improving current law mm-hmm. and things like that. Remind us, it was like I-940, which was the Yeah, well, that, that, that was, the that was uh, yes, required more training for police, and it was on use of force. But, for example, uh, we banned ghost guns. Um, which are like 3D printed guns. Oh, so right. we prohibit yeah. we prohibited those. Uh, we we now under a bill of mine, we rather than giving law enforcement discretion, we say when you visit a domestic violence incident, if there was a firearm used in that uh, that incident, you must temporarily remove it. You must temporarily remove any firearms that are in plain sight, and you must ask if there are other firearms and if there's a desire for them to be removed. Mm-hmm. Right, and we know that you know it's mostly women who are victims of, of DV, although. Um, men can be victims too, but that 90 days after they leave an abuser is the time when they are most likely to be murdered and by, to be murdered with a firearm. Wow. And so, right, so that's something we did. We uh, we did something on um, some work on all of our protection orders that related to um, uh, restricting someone's firearm rights. We have anti-harassment orders and sexual assault protection orders and extreme risk protection orders and did I say domestic violence protection orders? Mm-hmm. Anyway, and they're all handled differently, and that has made it really hard for courts and law enforcement to use them. And um, and so we tried to fix that. We fi- we um, our extreme risk protection orders. The courts have made it a little bit uh, clear to us that they weren't sure whether or not someone could get a protection order. If, if someone was under 18 mm. and was showing um, uh, that they were going to use a firearm to, to harm themselves or others. So we clarified that. Um, I, that. So those are just some examples of what we did. But All this year? All this year. Oh. And so that's about half of them. I, we we have a whole, uh, a whole bunch of other things. But I, I would hope listeners think, yeah, all of those are like really good, clarifying, appropriate, common sense steps. Um, but when I briefed them, we have a very large freshman class that was newly elected last year, and I'm used to briefing firearm bills very deeply in my caucus because it's a, there's a lot of discussion, different points of view. And so I was briefing them very deep, deeply, and then I had all these freshmen who said to me, why are you taking all this time briefing all these bills in this level of depth? Of course, these are common sense. We need to do them. And I'm like, wow, that's okay. That's a shift. It's right? a new we day. have these. We have these new members who shift your caucus in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a great lesson for me. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So yeah. So I want to get back to kind of some specific policies that I'll mm-hmm. ask you about. That sure. you know, you know, where you think you're going to fall on those potentially. Um, but first, I wanted to kind of talk about what you being speaker will mean for Tacoma and Pierce County and your district. There's actually a really good editorial in the TNT recently, and I don't often think their editorials are really good. But it was about uh, the days of, I guess, pork in Pierce County and the Pierce County mafia, like running things in Olympia and how it meant a lot of good things happened in terms of funding for Tacoma and Pierce County. So what mm-hmm. do you think? Are, are we going to get those days back or what will change? You know, that's interesting because so I disagree with you. I I was incredibly disappointed in the News Tribune for really? running an editorial like that. I thought um, it was, I guess I just thought it was really entertaining. Well, it, it was entertaining, <laughs> but, you know, that is not the job. I mean, one, pork is like bringing just back money and spreading it around. And I, that's not what the speaker should do. That's not what any elected official should do. Should just bring it home. To, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not. And my, my obligation is both to the people of this district and to the state of Washington. And um, I was just incredibly disappointed. And, and actually, I spent a little bit of the day today drafting a responsive piece to oh, that really? editorial. Um, I also am, it's I do think that col- that the collaboration of our of Republicans and Democrats in Pierce County can be very powerful for our county. But this idea of a mafia uh, is I, I just the whole thing was. Uh, really disappointing to me to see. Yeah. Um, now, that said, I do have an obligation to my district. But like one of the things about that editorial also, I would just say is it seemed like there was this underlying presumption that nothing was being done. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I Senator Darneal and Representative Fye and I, every capital budget request that has come to us 
we have worked to get funding. You know, so if you go to Tacoma Community House and um, you see the building that's being put up there, that's in part because capital budget funding came. You, uh, you'll you see a new building on the UWT campus, and the last building that they opened was something that they brought to us. And actually, that was something the whole Pierce County delegation worked together to make sure that we got funding for that. Um, uh, the YWCA is going to be building uh, a bunch of units of affordable housing, mm-hmm. and, and in part, you know, there's lots of other funders, but the state is part of that, and we worked on that. The retrofitting and seismic fitting and upgrading of the Pantages Theater, that came from us. Um, um, for, well, I'm again, not just us, but, but the state funded it. So um, the real thing is as long as people are putting forward really good projects that are helping our community, mm-hmm. I'm all up for, for getting uh, funding for that. Um, I think we have particular challenges because of Western State Hospital being in our um, in our county uh, with uh, mental health services. And so I can see why we, we might want to engage more for the 27th and for Pierce County mm-hmm. around mental health services. Um, so there are a lot of things and ways that I will advocate, but I, I just felt the tone of that editorial was just like, it was just kind of like about kind of me just grabbing bucks to bring right. back here. And I, that's just not how I view the role of the speaker. The role of the speaker is to take everybody's life in Washington forward. And so I have to care now. Now, you know, it used to be that I really cared about the 27th. And now I have I have to care as much about Colville and Walla Walla and Bellingham and Vancouver uh, and Moses Lake. Um, and I will care about all those places and I will care about my district the most. Right. So, A, that's a really good clapback, and mm-hmm. I applaud you. That was <laughs> You taught me a little lesson. I guess I'm always just surprised when I engage with their editorials, but no, no. that's a really good point. Um, and second, that's another good point, is that uh, it, it used to be, I guess, when you were just uh, Representative Jenkins, that the 27th was your children, yep. and now all of Washington State is yeah. your children. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. will that change your calculus at all? Well, I mean, I, I do. It is important. Like, uh, I think urban and rural districts have different challenges. Um, uh, there's wealthier and less wealthy districts that have challenges. I mean, for me, even in the 27th, it's really segmented. I mean, we're probably one of the more economically diverse districts in the state because we have great wealth in the district and great mm-hmm. poverty in the district. So I do I do like to think that this district actually represents a lot of the state as a microcosm of a lot of the state, although we're, we're all urban mm-hmm. and we don't have uh, rural parts. Um, but, um, but so I think looking at all of those things and that – Honestly, that's one of the great things I think about the Democratic caucus. We're a very diverse caucus now. We're, um, we have urban and rural Democrats, not as many rural Democrats as we used to, but we have um, uh, moderates and progressives and everything in between. We have a lot of racial uh, diversity. We have we, we really are looking for a gay man because we have lesbians <laughs> in the caucus. Um, um, but no, and, are there and no somebody gay who's tra- no, there's no gay man. There's one gay man in the house. He's a Republican. Oh, okay. Um, um, and uh, trans folks, and um, you know, we have religious diversity, and so I I say that because I think that having that diversity and then having us push and pull each other and help each other understand how things work for different communities that might not always be obvious mm-hmm. um, to somebody who's different. That helps us create much better solutions for the people of this state. So I'm excited about our diversity because I think it's going to help. It, it'll be it's hard. Like when you have a really diverse group with very different experiences and points of view, it's hard to get to common ground. But when you get to common ground, it's better for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, the outcome. So I'm super excited right. about that. So it'll kind of put like a, a microscope almost to how diverse our area is and how that. The addressing the problems here can also help address the yep. problems all over the state. Yeah. That's yeah. a good point. Um, all right. So I think we're going to take a real quick break. We'll okay. be right back. Great. This is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 sister podcast, We Art Tacoma. Channel 253 is sponsored by our friends at Tacoma Arts Live. Tacoma Arts Live energizes our community through live performance. Their mission is right there in the name. 
There's nothing like sitting in a crowded theater, elbow to elbow, as the lights go down and you feel that sense of anticipation of what's to come. Depending on the night, the experience at Tacoma Arts Live might engage us intellectually, touch us emotionally, or keep us laughing all night long. But no matter our reaction, at the core of that experience, we are flexing our most valuable muscle, our empathy, a crucial building block to the civic life of our community. Last year, more than 250,000 people attended an event in the Tacoma Arts Live venues. That's a lot of people. It's a sign of how vital Tacoma Arts Live is and how their diversity of programs mirror our community and how much we value that kind of experience. Connect with your community by visiting TacomaArtsLive.org to find an upcoming show that is right for you. Energize your passion and play your part. My thanks to Tacoma Arts Live for their support of Channel 253. We are back with speaker designate Lori Jenkins. Um, that, is that, did I say it right? You did. Okay. And it, what's funny is I was in a press interview yesterday and I got confused. I didn't even realize I'd done it and I called myself the speaker delegate. <laughs> um, so don't worry that if you if you get confused about it, I got confused about it too. It doesn't really roll off the no, tongue. No, it does not. It does not. Yeah. I'm like, did, did, what did I say? Did I say delegate? Like, <laughs> um, for, the mo- for most people, what I've been saying to them is, uh, why don't you just call me Lori? There that you go. would be great. Perfect. That's what everyone loves about you. And you're here at 7 p.m. in our studio, and you could be home with your family having this conversation. So thank you. Yeah, I'm happy um, to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so one time we were talking a little bit uh, offline about your humor and the way you approach things. Then You're so approachable. Um, so I was looking back at some old Capital Happy Hour with you and Melissa Santos from two years ago. And it reminded me that you started Wall-Edge Socks, which I thought was hilarious. Mm-hmm. So, like, tell me about Wall-Edge Socks. Let's, oh, you're pulling them out right now. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so you're wearing blue socks with dark blue dots that say, bam, pow, in, like, <laughs> I don't know how you describe that, like, comic book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it, it's like the, I think it's like if you ever watched Batman when Batman was in a fight and it would say, bam, pow, on the TV screen. Yeah. Other kind of socks like that. Pew, pew. Yeah. 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 So yeah. how many pairs of socks do you have? Oh, my goodness. Like, I have a lot. I I don't know. I'll bet I have 50 or 60 pairs of socks wow. by now. Um, you go two months without yeah, doing laundry. Yeah. I, so maybe I don't have that many. I don't know. But I can go a long <laughs> time um, on my socks. Although I try to think about my day a little bit and what I wear. It, it, I've gotten a lot of socks gifted to me. And all the ones that have been gifted to me, nearly all of them, have swear words on them. Nice. Which, which I'm like, uh, I don't know what that says about me, but um, <laughs> but I, I like them, but I do try and be a little bit thoughtful about when I'm wearing them. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why Wall-Edge Socks, that hashtag, I never identify whose socks are being photographed uh, because some of them are mine and some of them have swear words and I don't want to make people <laughs> mad at me. Uh, <laughs> some of them are other people sometimes, but that was a the way that started actually is kind of funny. Um, Reuven Carlisle, who's in the Senate now, used to sit next to me on the floor, and he would wear uh, interesting socks. And every he started coming in, and every day he'd be like, "Jenkins, see what I got?" And he he'd show me his socks, and then he'd be like, "What are you wearing?" And I'd pull up my pant leg, and it would be black cotton socks every mm-hmm. single time. And he started giving me a hard time about it. <laughs> I, for a while, I tried to convince him, these are known as lesbian socks, Ruben. <laughs> so just let let me be. Um, and and I, then I started thinking about it. And I'm like, you know, you this would probably be a good way, Lori, for you to like stretch out your wardrobe a little bit, do something that is not uh, totally you. And so I started wearing them. And then I got this idea that it would be a nice kind of bonding experience. Um, and it would let everybody participate. If I didn't say whose socks they were, then mm-hmm. neither Republicans nor Democrats nor nonpartisan staff nor lobbyists would have to worry about it. Uh, we, I would just send out the the three best socks of the day, and um, and people could look at them. And what what's been very fun is. Um, 
is now I have people seek me out. Um, <laughs> Lori, and, Lori. Yeah, to, to, for me to take a picture of their socks. And my wife often tells this story about being down with me where, where people will walk up to me, just pull up their pant leg. They won't say a word to me. I'll take a picture and I won't say a word to them and I'll walk off and they'll walk off. And she's like, what is that? And I'm like, that's wall-edged socks. Um, so I'm hoping that I can keep on doing that. I think I'll be in a lot of meetings, but I'm hoping the people who come to my meetings will wear really interesting socks. And just like subtly hike up a pant leg yeah. and be like, yeah. uh-huh, yep. look what I yep. got. Yep. So, I'm, I mean, I, I enjoy practical jokes a lot. Um, this, what other ones have you pulled? Well, I mean, this, um, this last year, uh, this last session, uh, people st- – there were some folks who got confused and thought – actually, there was a reporter that got confused and thought that I was uh, Representative Cody, <laughs> Eileen Cody, um, who's been in the legislature as long as um, – as uh, uh, Speaker Chop, and who I would like to point out is 11 years older than me. <laughs> 11 years older than me. She, This reporter had us confused. Oh, dear. Um, she's also slightly taller than me, but I don't care about that. It's the 11 years older. Anyway, so so we, <laughs> at the, the last day of session, we wore matching jackets like we were <laughs> twins, and a, a, a lobbyist actually had socks made for us with both of our pictures on them um, for our twin socks. And then we, uh, another person got us T-shirts that say, um, life's a bitch, then you signy die. <laughs> and so we, we basically dressed like twins the final day as kind of our, here we are, we're twins. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just want to be clear, how many years older than me is she? 11. Yes, correct. She is. <laughs> So Signy Die is last day of session, yes. right? Yeah. 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 For those of you not in the know who didn't read Melissa Santos's amazing <laughs> uh feature on you, that was a really good that was a really good feature. It was. I enjoyed it a lot and in part um there was a lot of humor in it, mm-hmm. which um which I like I said is um I can actually entertain myself just thinking my own funny thoughts a lot. Um, and I have no idea if anyone else would find them funny, but uh, I enjoy it. And I think it's a way to uh, – we can be in a pretty intense place a lot. So it is um, it is fun to be able to do small little humorous things um, or light things during during the day. Um, you know, I've been known to steal and hide people's food items that they leave out on their desk. I, I – my – Freshman term, uh, Representative Kirby, who represents the 29th, has a electric fireplace in his office. And I was able to figure out a way to steal the fireplace from wow. his office and move it around the Capitol. And um, and strangely, with Senator Darneal, convinced the governor, who was then Governor Gregoire, to have a picture of her taken of her in her office with his fireplace <laughs> drinking coffee. Um, you know, so some of them are more elaborate and harder than others. How big is that fireplace? Um, it was big. We had to wheel it around on a dolly wow. um, to do it. And um, and stealing it, it was a very a complicated. But luckily, I had Jeannie Darniel with me, who was a more senior member. So she knew her way around things. Um, she got the staff to go along with it. Yes, basically yes, <laughs> basically yes. But we had to go down on a on a on a day when no one was there, um, and Connie Ladenberg was serving with us then, and so it was Connie and and uh, and Jeannie and I who who played that trick. That's really funny. Yeah. Representing Pierce County. Yeah, that's I love right. it. That's right. <laughs> it was a little scary that um, Steve did figure out that someone had been in his office and called the state patrol. <gasps> um, so that was that made Jeannie quite nervous, but. Mm. We, it all worked out in the end, and he tells the story a lot and is quite – he thinks it's quite a great practical joke to have played. So It sounds like 13-year-old girls, like, <laughs> play, playing a trick at camp on some boy. <laughs> I mean, I do want to say I don't spend my whole time doing doing socks and stealing um, and stealing fireplaces and, and stuff like that. But, uh, again, a couple minutes of every day – with a little bit of lightheartedness helps you get through toward midnight if you need to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Do you feel like those jokes and kind of that spirit help you bridge the gap with some Republicans that you work with? Yeah, um, f- for sure, for sure. And especially like the Wallage socks, I walk up and down their aisles talking to them about who has great socks. And, and a number of them have – told me they intentionally went out and got socks so they could be on wall-edge socks. You know, so I think that part helps. But, the, you know, the other part is just trying to find common ground and shared shared concern on an issue and then explore um, can we come to a common place about how of a solution. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, you know, the biggest uh, the biggest thing I probably have worked on in the last couple of years is the long-term care trust. So, you know, every Washington, in 2025, every working Washingtonian is going to have long-term care insurance in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Explain what that means. Well, listeners. so that, so um, people will pay a premium through their, their paycheck, um, a pretty small premium. And then um, should they need help with activities of daily living, such as um, meat, eating, cooking, dressing, bathing, toileting, um, if they uh, have uh, dementia or something like that. Those are called activities of daily living. And I can't remember if it's two or three, but if two or three of those are affected, then you'll have access to this long-term care insurance policy, which is, uh, it'll amount to $36,500. At least this year, it grows with inflation. um, which $36,500 per person? Per per person. It's a lifetime benefit, Mm -hmm. um, which I think some people think, well, that's not very much, but so that would give you um, a half a day of in-home care for a year, which is what the average person who needs long-term care in Washington, that's really about what they need. If you need something more, like you need to be in a nursing home, you know, that might be more like four months of nursing home care. If if you're in an adult family home, that might be six months in um, assisted living, maybe eight months or so. But, you know, there's 800,000 people in this state who are family, unpaid family caregivers. Mm. And so the bill also allows for those family members to both get training and to be paid for the care that they're providing for a family member um, and to prov- to pay for respite care. So that might be up to five years of respite care respite for a family care? member. Well, just, um, you know, if you're taking care of a, f- a family member who is in the home and can't leave the home, you need time to oh, be away, right? You need to time, there. Yeah, you mm-hmm. need time to um, be able to go out and shop or do stuff or even take a short vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in-home caregivers might be able to get as, you know, as much as five, five years worth of respite care out of that, depending on what they need. Um, and the other thing is it right now you have to spend yourself into poverty to get on Medicaid before you can get any long-term care. Mm-hmm. And seven out of 10 Washingtonians are going to need something. And uh, almost 90% of them have no savings for it. So so this really will hopefully prevent people from having to spend themselves into poverty before they get care. And and also it saves our Medicaid budget uh, over the long run billions and billions of dollars. But I started this story to kind of talk about bipartisan – uh, support. And that bill started off with uh, bipartisan uh, co-sponsors. We worked together very well. Um, in the end, the Republicans decided to think of it as a tax, and so all voted no. But <laughs> but co- going out of the House at first, uh, we had support. And I and I know we're, we'll have support on implementation. But, you know, we also had stakeholders as kind of in different spots as on one end. Uh, it's probably not fair to call this ends, but in, one side was SEIU 775, uh, a very progressive labor organization, and uh, the Association of Washington Business, mm. which is typically not not uh, they're they're more conservative. Both of those groups supported the bill throughout, testified for it, and test and you know supported it up until the end. And that was in large part due to last summer during this time getting those getting groups together and working out the issues and pushing on each other a little bit and pulling on each other and mm-hmm. compromising and coming to a really good solution. So we can do that. We do that about 90% of the time. So about 90% of the bills that go off the floor of the house are broadly bipartisan supported. Mm-hmm. People are f- shocked to hear that. Yeah. Um and about 10% uh are maybe have a much more a strong partisan divide. That's mostly what you hear about in the press and what you read about. You know, and there are significant differences between Republicans and Democrats. And so you see those partisan splits there. But for the most part, we work together collaboratively quite well. Right. You have to all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's do that's just a testament to doing all that yeah. legwork and yeah. really making those relationships. Yeah. It's yeah. probably a lot harder. I feel like we all get in our bubble and we're like, I can't talk to anyone who would vote for Trump or I can't talk yeah. to anyone who's a conservative or believes this. But when you're working with those people all the time, I mean, it's a different situation. Right. And we it is true. Like when you're down in session, uh, you, you're really with the same people 
day after day, um, um, which is which is great. It can be tiring, but it it also does create a sense of camaraderie when when people have uh, you know something that happens to their family. Mm-hmm. We rally around each other quite well. Uh, frequently, we're going to Democrats and Republicans, whoever has expertise, sometimes for personal advice about things, um, because you know that someone knows about you know whatever topic it is. Uh, someone has a family member with a serious behavioral health issue, and um, needs some sort of treatment. Um, and I, because I work in that area a lot, Republicans and Democrats come to me a lot to talk about their family member and and ask you know Can you help me figure out what I should do here? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we try and do for each other. Um, so yeah, we didn't we didn't touch on this, but you work for the Tacoma Pierce County Health Department, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. in my other job. In your right? other job, yeah. Yep, yep. And you're a lawyer by training. Yep. Yep. And uh, are you going to keep your Tacoma Pierce County Health Department job, you think, when you become? I sure uh, plan to. Um, I mean, I think I'm still discovering what this job is, mm-hmm. uh, but I, um, I really want to keep the job. I like it. I've always loved working for the health department. You know, my wife and I have a son going off to college. Uh, and um, f- and financially, it's important for me to have a job. This isn't the legislature isn't a full time job. It's considered a part time job, um, even though you work full time at it. But it's paid as a part time position. Uh, so it's something that I need to do. And there's this is really a little bit hard personally, but philosophically, I think there's a lot of people in my district who have to do that. They have to work two jobs to make a living. Tam, you're and, and walking the talk. Yeah, and, and so it's not. It, it, that's okay that I need to do that. Um, and it's good that I have a great job that I like and coworkers that I love at the health department. They're incredibly flexible with me. So if I need to take time off, they let me do that. Um, so I hope to be able to keep the job, but time will tell. Right. Time will tell. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's see. Okay. So we didn't, I wanted to ask you about a couple policy things sure. and where you think you guys might mm-hmm. land in the coming year. Mm-hmm. So speaking of Melissa Santos, she made me promise that because I got this idea from her, because she is brilliant and knows all things legislature. Um, I promised that I wouldn't air this episode until Monday if I could use this little tidbit because she's running a story on Monday. (laughs) (laughs) I did talk to her earlier today, and I would just say, I know more about the legislature than Melissa Santos. (laughs) So uh, I I think, I think I do. Um, Probably. uh, So so she's embargoed you, huh? She embargoed me. Jeez. I love her so much. That woman has a lot of power. I'm going to watch out for her. She has a lot of power. (laughs) Yeah. She's also like one of my best friends. She she, um, also, I can really guarantee she likes tater tots a lot. (laughs) I have uh, eaten tater tots with her and she's a tater tot lover. She's a fan of tater tots. (laughs) So if I... I, well, she used to have, okay, Doug's looking at me like, what? She used to have this amazing, when she worked at the News Tribune, this Capitol Happy Hour where she'd sit down and, and video a conversation with a legislator over tots and soda or whatever. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be beer because no one wanted to put themselves up to that kind of liability. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, and it started with you. You were the first episode. I was her, I was her first guest, yeah, and it was mm. great. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was great fun. Uh, I don't I don't remember everything that we talked about, but it was I think it was at the beginning of a special session, so we talked a little bit yeah. about that, and we laughed and ate tot, tater tots, and, and uh, I loved the I, I loved the concept. I kept on asking her, though, though why don't you – Call it like talk and tots or something <laughs> like that. Um, I think that got vetoed. Yeah, she, that's what she told me that it got vetoed. I don't really think necessarily. I mean, I don't need to. I don't mean to totally. Um, gosh, just be only negative about the News Tribune editors, but I just don't think they had a sense of humor on that one. I agree. They <laughs> I'm amazed they let her do it at all, honestly. Really, but people really liked going on. A, lot, a number of members did it, and it, um, it was. Um, it was fun. That's she awesome. has she does have a way of catching people in very catching me for sure in very <laughs> funny moments, um, and, and uh, she's she does a good job. She does. Mm-hmm. So now that I have her blessing, since we're not airing this until Monday, yes. guns. Yes. What do What do you think is going to happen next year? Well, uh, I think um, I think it's. I think it's too soon to tell. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I just went over a a number of the bills that we passed. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you start to talk about what nationally, what they're talking about nationally, universal background checks. Mm -hmm. Washington voters already passed universal background checks. We have them. We know they're working. We know that 
many people who shouldn't have firearms are denied the, the right to have them because of background checks. Um, the red flag laws that they've been talking about, that's – I was talking about those earlier. That's ex an extreme risk protection order. So when someone is showing that they're a danger to themselves or others and there's been kind of some history around firearms, their firearms can be temporarily removed mm -hmm. um, from them. You can get a protective order to Pierce County to has that them. law. Yeah, well, yeah. it's a statewide. It's a statewide law. Oh, okay, it is it's okay. a statewide law, and that was passed by the voters. Oh, okay. So, um, so, uh, and we've do, we've done some improvements there. I think the big conversations right now are around uh, assault weapon mm -hmm. a ban on assault weapons, and um, high capacity magazines. So, assault weapons. It's a pretty easy answer, at least for next year. We have an initiative that a year ago. Um, amended the se the section on prohibitions for firearms to prohibit minors having access to assault weapons. And if we were to try and amend that law because it was an initiative, mm -hmm. if we try to amend that law, it, our Constitution requires a two-thirds vote within the first two years of the passage of that initiative in order to amend it. Um, that's I think lot. it would require Republicans mm -hmm. uh, to uh, to vote for it, and I would hope I would really hope they would. And if we have bipartisan support, then we could look at that. Do you think some um, would at this point? I have no idea. Right. I have no. And uh, and the the other thing, just honestly, is that we have not had that conversation in our caucus either um, yet. So I can't. I can say that I am supportive, but I can't tell you what my caucus thinks mm -hmm. or what the Republicans think. And I do think also my job as speaker isn't always just to move forward bills that I support. I really need to – I really have made a commitment to listen to the caucus. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that would be something that I would need to do. But I think that's really unlikely because it requires two-thirds in the Senate, two-thirds in the House. It's hard to imagine that. Yeah. But again – um, it'd be great to see Republican support because that's what it would require. Right. So I think that's not um, – we're not likely to do that. I, I don't – again, we'll look at – it doesn't require two-thirds, but high-capacity magazines um, and limiting the, the the size of magazines is something I think is a super good idea. Yeah. Seems um, common sense to yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, but again, we'll have to have a conversation in caucus about that. And, you know, there would be hearings and committees so we could – get testimony and make sure we understand the complications of the bill. It, it like on assault weapons, that's a more complicated bill than people might think because the way in which you define what an assault weapon is has a pretty big impact. So you could define it in a very broad way that would limit very responsible gun owners from from owning guns that are fine. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't really want to do that. Or you could define it in a way that's so loose that someone could create a kind of new form of gun that essentially does what an assault weapon does. And so you, you really haven't had any impact. Mm -hmm. I think in the end, what's important is that um, weapons of war shouldn't be in our neighborhoods. They shouldn't be being carried by people walking down the street. They shouldn't be in our Walmarts. They shouldn't be in our schools. They shouldn't be in our nightclubs. They shouldn't be any of the places that we've seen these mass shootings. We should not have weapons of war. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that very strongly. But figuring out how we get there is the challenge of the speaker. That's that calculus you talked about earlier. Like if yeah. you go too far, you risk alienating a lot of people who might be potentially responsible gun owners and risk alienating your position. Um, but if you go too loose, then people find new loopholes and right. new ways to do what they're going to yeah. do. And, and one of the other things I just want to say is um, it's become clear to me that this is a cultural problem in addition to a firearm problem. And I do think there, that we really ought to turn a lot of our attention toward the cultural problem of um, – uh, of white nationalism, of bullying in schools, um, and, and trying to get some more counselors in, in schools and support for um, young people. And there's also – we actually have one of the preeminent researchers on mass shootings um, at the UWT. His name is Eric Madfis, and he's done some really great research on this. And one of the things that he – they have uh, certainly identified is that Many, many mass shooters actually tell someone that they're going to do it before they do it. And they might do something like say, uh, hey, don't come to school on Friday. I really like you. Don't come to school. And and if you, um, if you have an environment in which that person who was told that feels 
good and confident about being able to tell someone who in responsibility, you can, there's actually really good evidence that we've been that there have been many mass shootings in the nation that have been able to be stopped mm. from happening because of that. It's a weird term. He he calls it leakage. <laughs> um, is the is the term he uses? But so I think thinking about um, our school environment and other environments and trying to increase leakage mm-hmm. um, is important. And it's interesting. One of the examples I saw him I heard him give in a presentation was he said, you know, so for example, folks who want to do um, metal detectors in schools, he goes, here's how uh, teenagers interpret metal detectors is that they are being watched always, that they are not trusted, and that they will always be caught. And he said, you might think that that would um, help, but in fact, what it makes is for young people who won't tell adults anything. Interesting. Um, and it it really it really negatively affects trust. Right. Um, so he, you know, his advice was probably not metal detectors in schools. Right. And then they could just do whatever they're going to do somewhere else. Right. You can't have metal detectors yeah. everywhere you walk. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, that's not that's not really about firearms. That's about uh, cultural change right. and cultural work that I think we need to do. And some of it would be with funding and with legislation. Mm-hmm. We need to have him on. That sounds yeah. super Yeah, he's he's super smart guy. I really like him a lot. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask you about that we talked a little about earlier is uh, landlord-tenant protections mm-hmm. and the possibility of rent control. Yeah. If yeah. that's if that's a yeah, possibility. so um, uh, landlord tenant uh, issues are in the committee that I used to chair. Mm-hmm. I'm getting see, I'm easing into that now, saying I used to chair <laughs> used that committee. Chair. Um, uh, and I think we did hear the rent control bill last year. We did. I didn't move it. One of the things that I discovered. You mentioned I work in public health, and so um, having – one of the rules of public health is that we try not to do things where there's not an evidence base for it. And the evidence base on whether or not rent control works is pretty conflicted. Hmm. Um, and so th- I think that that's going to be an issue that we're going to want to study more. But uh, interestingly, we have a committee meeting in September, and we – one of the things we're going to do is hear from a, U, a, a University Washington, uh, what what do we call that? The Montlake campus, because mm. I like to con- I like to consider the Tacoma campus the central campus to the <laughs> University of Washington. So that that place in Seattle is the Montlake campus. Right, um, it's just a satellite. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but they we've we heard briefly last session from a professor who'd done a lot of research on evictions and um, what what. What they look like, he, he's the he's the person that was able to identify a huge number of evictions happening in Seattle uh, over less than fifty dollars. Some wow. like a, some, a handful of evictions for over two do, two dollars, yeah. two bucks. Wow. Um, so we're going to hear from him about his research um, and then hear um, a little bit about how he thinks the bills that we passed last year. We we passed some pretty great bills mm-hmm. on eviction reform last year. How what impact he thinks they'll have, and then. Uh, the third thing we've asked him to talk about is if there are other evidence-based interventions that he thinks we ought to engage in. And when you talk about homelessness, um, eviction is a part of that, you know, and then there's affordable housing and uh, there's just ge- poverty generally. There's a lot of things that feed into homelessness, but uh, my committee has – my former committee has jurisdiction over the landlord-tenant portion of that. Right. Okay. Perfect. Um, let's see. What's another one we should ask you about? I'm um, not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, fossil fuels? <laughs> um, well, I guess the, here's the thing I can say about that. We, After kind of a lot of years of not making a ton of progress on climate change, um, we were really able to make some progress this year. And I think, I think that the, that um, I, I think people are feeling urgency. Yes. Around this, and when I say people, I mean the public, as well as elected officials, are feeling urgency around it. And so I expect that we'll hopefully see more work on on climate change, and some of that is highly fossil fuel related. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not; I don't happen to be the expert on that topic. Joe Fitzgibbon is the chair of our environment committee, and this issue is the issue that brought him to the legislature. So I trust his uh, a lot of the work that he does. Uh, Beth Dolio is another colleague who's done a lot. There have been a lot of people who've done um, work on it, but but I expect to see um, the great work that they're doing over the interim 
come to the fore for Bill's next session. Of course, I have to say I feel terrible because I have a plastic cup sitting right by me. I usually have my reusable little Starbucks reusable iced one, but I left it at the office today. So I am that asshole with the plastic cup. I am going straight to hell. I'm sorry, Washington. <laughs> well, I my thing is actually a little bit – It's um, I hear you on the plastic cup thing, but my public health side is all about bottled drinking water. Oh, yeah. So I only drink tap water, and people are likely to hear a diatribe from me here in Tacoma when when they drink bottled water. Because I'm like, why would you do that? We have the best tap water in the United States of America. Our, I'm going to go backpacking in the next few days, and I'm going to be hiking through the watershed that Tacoma owns that for, for many, many years – the federal government didn't even ask for us to filter our water because yeah. it was so good. Wow. Um, and then they required everyone to filter. Um, so so we do now. But um, but I like I don't see any need to buy bottled water. We have we have better water than any place in the country. And um, and there are regulations that regulate tap water and there aren't that regulate bottled water. Yes. So if you want to you know, be safe. And I, I understand what happened in Flint and that's a travesty and it should never happen anywhere else. But as a general rule, we have great water here and across the United States. Absolutely. Well, we are blessed to have that. We are blessed to have you, Lori Jenkins. <laughs> I'm really excited for your new role and thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. It was great. Uh, it was great to be here and talk with you about all these issues. And uh, I'm excited. I'm really excited um, to do the work of, of Washington. Awesome. Citizen Tacoma is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other podcasts, Move to Tacoma, Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, Crossing Division, We Art Tacoma, Flounders B-Team, and Tacoma. If you'd like to reach out to us about anything you heard on the show today, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic, please email me at candice.rude at gmail.com. That's Candice with an I, dot rude, R-U-U-D, at gmail.com. The Citizen Tacoma Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Candice Rude, and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. This is Channel 253.